0: If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 30. Great song to end on leading into our time in the Word. There's something freeing about weak and helpless people, redeemed though we are, acknowledging that we have nothing, and that anything that we have we receive from the Lord going into Exodus 30, uh, what I would like for us to try to see are two complementary things. One, that what the Lord's people need from the ministry of the the priest that he provides for them, or what the people need from the priest, the Lord provides through that priestly ministry. But then second, and this is the the bigger point, what we really want to drive home, what we truly need and what Christ provided just shadows of in the old covenant with the old priest, we receive in full, perfectly, through the better priesthood of Jesus Christ. So before we read, let me just just say a couple things, place setting um, details about this particular passage. Uh, Before we go on, it's a very, very odd passage to try to preach or teach because there are uh, probably about five different subject matters that are addressed in this chapter. And there doesn't really seem to be any uh, very clear or demonstrable connection that ties it all together. So uh, you start off in, in verses 1 through 10 talking about the incense altar. And then in verse 11, you go to talking about taking a census of the people and a a ransom price that has to be paid for atonement. And then after that, you go to the bronze laver or the basin and how the priests have to wash themselves before they enter into the tabernacle or before they do any sacrificial offerings. And then after that, you get a description of the, uh, the anointing oil that's supposed to be specially prepared to anoint the priests and all of the tabernacle furniture and items. And then after that, you close off on the, on the specific kind of incense that's supposed to be used on the incense altar. So it's just sort of, it, it, you, you read it and it just sort of feels like a, a little bit of a, a hodgepodge of things. The, the best explanation that, that I found and what we're going to try to work with today, although we won't cover everything in this chapter, is to say that if there is a way to tie all this together, what all of these different elements have in common is that in some way it ties into the unique ministry of the priest. It all pertains to actions that the priest either the high priest or the, the priesthood, the, the group, is going to perform for the people. And so having said all that, if all of this is tied together in terms of the, the original Old Testament context, if all of this is tied together to present to us some of the unique ministries that the priest provided on behalf of the people, And if we know, because the scriptures tell us that all of these things in the Old Testament ultimately are pointing us to Christ, then what we want to see is recognize the ministry that's being provided here and how the real ultimate fulfillment of those gifts can only come through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So follow with me as we read. Uh, For sake of time this morning, we're only going to cover the, the first three issues that are brought up, the incense altar, Uh, the ransom payment, and the washing in the laver. So chapter 30, verse 1, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit. It will be square and its height will be two cubits. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You will overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you will make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron will burn fragrant incense on it. He will burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he will burn incense. There will be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You will not offer any strange incense on this altar or burn offering or meal offering, and you will not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron will make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich will not pay more, and the poor will not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You will take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and will give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And then verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And it will be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do acknowledge freely that we need you. Even if we rightly understand what is being revealed to us in this passage, unless you do a unique work on our hearts and minds by the power of your spirit for Christ's sake, this will fall on deaf ears and it will fall on dull hearts. I confess this for myself first and foremost. Father, be good and kind to your people to give us a better understanding and appreciation for the glories of Christ Jesus and for the gifts and the inheritance that is ours in our perfect and faithful high priest. We pray this in your son's name, amen. So we're going to try to do this in three ways. Uh, It's not often that I use alliteration, but when alliteration comes in an outline, you know it's got to be a divinely inspired outline, right? Otherwise, alliteration wouldn't happen. So here are the, here are the three key words that we want to use to sort of, as, as hooks, to hang this on. Looking at the ministry of the priest in the verses that we read, we, wanna, we want to consider that the priest prays, pays, and purifies. He prays, he pays, he purifies. More specifically, we ought to say that it's our priest who prays and pays and purifies because in fact as we'll see in just a moment the second one of those the paying the priest actually does not pay anything but we'll get to that in a minute all right so start with Number one, the priest and his responsibility to offer up prayers. The, the question comes in when you talk about the altar of incense here, what, the, what its significance is and how are we going from the altar of incense to talking about the priest offering up prayers. So here's what I think is, is going on. You have, as you enter into the tent, which only the priest can enter into, as the priest would enter in, he would have the, the table of the, the bread, the showbread, the bread of the presence to his right He'd have the lampstand on a table to his left. In front of him would be the curtain that separated that holy space from the most holy space where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God was said to uniquely dwell and manifest himself. Right in front of that curtain, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, is the incense altar. Now, We don't ever get in the Old Testament, so far as I know, a clear, explicit statement as to what the altar of incense represents, but there are some verses that are, at the very least, strongly suggestive, if not very helpful. You don't need to turn there, but just listen as I read it to you. In Psalm 141, verse 2, the psalmist says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. So in the same way that you burn incense and the, the incense, the smoke from the incense burning on that little altar would, would rise and would fill the room and would begin to permeate the area. The, in Psalm 141, let my prayers be like that incense that comes up that has that, that fragrant aroma that you find pleasing. And then, interestingly enough, in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, you have this statement. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one hold, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in at least two places, and we could point to a couple more where prayer is closely associated with incense and the, and the incense offering. But at least in two places, both in the Old and New Testament, prayer is associated with the picture of the incense being offered up to the Lord. So although the incense altar and the, uh, the, the incense that's burned and that goes up in smoke may represent more than, prayers, at the very least I think it does have to symbolize the prayers of God's people going up before the Lord or being brought before Him. And the desire because of the fragrant aroma that the incense was supposed to be made out of or was supposed to give off, the desire that not only would those prayers be offered up to the Lord, but would be offered up in a way that the Lord would find pleasing and acceptable. So having said that, Notice two things in Exodus 30 about the nature of the priest's ministry as it concerns the incense altar. Look at verses seven and eight. Aaron will burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he will burn incense. There will be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Remember last week, We said that both in the morning and at the evening, the day was going to start and end the exact same way in the outer courtyard, which was a blood sacrifice. Fire was going to consume a sacrifice as a way to signify the constant daily need. For God's wrath at sin, his displeasure with sin, to be satisfied and atoned for. In the same way, not only will every day begin and end with a blood sacrifice, every day will begin and end with the priest entering into the Lord's tent and offering up incense on this altar, symbolizing the fact that he is coming in bringing prayers for the people and bringing the prayers of the people to the Lord. The prayers of the people and prayers for the people are to be offered every single day, morning and night. And by morning and night, I don't think the idea is that you only pray in the morning and you only pray in the evening. It's a way to frame your entire day to say the prayers of God's people ought always to be going up before the Lord. We are needy people. And that's going to happen every day, and it's going to happen in perpetuity. There's no end in sight. The second thing to take note of, if you look back down in verse 9, is the statement, you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering, or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. At the end of chapter 30 and verses 34 and following, you actually have a description, very precise ingredients that are to be used in the making of this incense that was gonna be burned on the altar. And the Lord says very clearly, the only time that you are to use this incense is for the incense altar inside the tent. You don't use it anywhere else for any other purpose except for that one use. So not only do the prayers of the people need to be offered up constantly, continually, day after day, week after week, year after year, there's the idea that as the prayers of God's people are being offered up, there is a desire, a rightly ordered desire, that the prayers that are being offered up will be prayers that the Lord will find acceptable. Turn with me to get a feel for sort of the the tension or the pressure even some of the desperation that exists in this act. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. This is when Solomon is dedicating the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, start with me at verse 27. Follow along with me as I read verses 27 through 30. 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30. This is Solomon as he's dedicating the temple. Listen to what Solomon says, specifically as it pertains to the prayers of God's people. 827, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, towards the place of which you have said, My name will be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray to this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven, your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. Do you hear that? It's the recognition that although God has granted something like the tabernacle, although God has granted something like the temple to his people as a gift, all of that gift of God's presence and dwelling is every day, every moment, nothing but sheer grace. Because a holy God is dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. And the only right-ordered response on the, behalf of, on the part of sinful people to a holy God is to cry out for grace and mercy. This is what God is teaching in Exodus 30 with the incense altar. Every day, my people ought to be crying out for my help, for my forgiveness, for my deliverance, for my strength, for my support. And who is going to carry these prayers into the presence of God in Exodus 30? one of the very people who struggles with the same sin that everyone else struggles with. He's not coming in burden-free, faultless. He comes in with his own sins and acts of disobedience and rebellion, with his own frailties and weaknesses, and he brings in symbolic form this incense night and day to put on the altar as a way to say, Lord, we are asking you in your grace to please hear us when we call. And the Lord, in his abounding grace and mercy, listens to the prayers of his people. If God is willing to accept the prayers broken feeble, imperfect that they are, the prayers of a priest entering in, praying for himself, praying for the people, if he's willing to accept the prayers of a host, a multitude of people, who are daily asking for the same forgiveness over and over again, if he is willing to accept those weak and broken prayers... How much more is he willing to accept the perfect prayers of a perfect priest in his son, Jesus Christ? Turn with me to Romans 8. Start with me at verse 34. Paul says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also does what for us? Intercedes. Every time you find yourself sinning that same sin for the 10th time, for the 20th time, in a day, let alone a week. Every moment of frustration, every moment of doubt and despair that you encounter because of your sin and your sense of unworthiness, Jesus is praying for you. Every day that you wake up to face a hostile world who is totally opposed to your desires who is hostile and hateful of your Savior who would rather see you pushed off to the side than have to tolerate your presence and the uncomfortable conviction that your witness brings to them. Every time you feel that pressure and you feel like you may be ready to buckle Jesus is praying for you. Every time you feel that you are at your wit's end because you don't know what to do with that family member who's running off the rails, or you don't know which door you're supposed to walk through, you don't know which is the right and the best path of obedience in the current situation and context in which you're in, every time that you're confused and don't know how to make heads or tails out of your situation, Jesus is praying for you. And what the priest could only do in the Old Testament periodically, because of his limitations, because Jesus is eternal, there is not a single moment of our existence when we are living and operating without his prayers covering us. You still in Romans 8? Backtrack just a little bit to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit, who, by the way, earlier in chapter 8 is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not only do you have a perfect, eternal high priest who covers you in intercession for your blessing, for your good, for your greater glory, as a gift of that relationship that you enjoy with Christ, you also get the spirit of that high priest who is praying for you, who prays from within your own heart and mind. So that when you go to the Lord to pray... And you don't even know how to formulate the words, prayer is still being offered up effectively. Every day. Every moment. And if God was willing to accept the feeble, broken prayers of the old, sinful, priest, accept them, hear them, and answer them, how much more confident can we be that he will not only hear and accept, but will answer the prayers of his own son for us? I love this quote by Robert Murray McShane. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. We have a better priest who offers up better prayers on our behalf. Number two, these priests back in Exodus 30 were to receive in verses 11 and following a ransom payment that was made. So skip down with me to verse 12 and read here for a couple of verses. When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Skip down to verse 15. The rich will not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Two things we might say here, just by way of general observation, before we start to try to dig in a little bit deeper. Number one, every single person 20 years and older is expected to pay this ransom price for their atonement. Rich or poor, no matter what, you pay as a way to symbolize the fact that your life has been ransomed, has been bought by the God that you serve and that you worship. And second, just as interesting, perhaps a little bit curious, is that this ransom that is paid is going to be received by the priest. It's going to be put towards the tabernacle ministry. So the people are gonna pay their their ransom price. That ransom price is going to go to the priest. The priest will receive it to fund the continuing ministry of the tabernacle. But we're told that one of the functions symbolically in terms of the ritual or the worship element is that this price is to be received at the tabernacle so that it could serve as a memorial or as a remembrance of the people before the Lord. As a way, figuratively speaking, to remind the Lord that his people were bought and paid for. How much payment has to be made? When is it going to be enough? Says Old Testament merit. Right? In Exodus, I've already been told that every sin or that my sins have to be atoned for personally on the altar. When I have to provide for a burnt offering or a sin offering, that cost comes to me. I offer up something from my herd, from my flock, to pay for atonement. I have to pay to redeem or to ransom my firstborn son. Every first animal from the flock has to be sacrificed as an offering to the Lord. Every firstling. The priest has to be atoned for. And every time a census is taken, I've got to pay more money for my atonement. When do I get to stop? When have we sacrificed enough? When have we paid enough to say, there it is, there it is, atonement's done, settled. You never get there. You know why you never get there? Because no matter what you give from your family or your flock or your finances, those things never ultimately pay for the actual sin. Paul says in Romans three, that in all of the sacrifices and offerings that were, or, that were offered up according to the Old Testament, that even when all those things were happening, that God was passing over the sins previously committed in pure patience and forbearance until real satisfaction and payment could be made in the price paid by Christ. All that you're doing in the Old Covenant when you pay these prices, when you offer up these sacrifices, all you're doing is delaying the inevitable. And if, then, God is willing to spare the lives of his people, even if symbolically, for a piddly Half shekel. How much more certain is our security and our life going to be spared when the cost of our atonement and the ransom paid for us is nothing less than the gift, the cost of his own son? In the Greek translation of this this passage, when it talks about paying a ransom, it's the same Greek word that shows up in Matthew and Mark when Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. All of this, that's just symbolic, shadows, but doesn't really count for anything, never really settles the debt. Jesus says, I do that. I settle. I pay. And unlike the Old Testament priest who receives the payment, Jesus is the payment. He doesn't take the payment from the people. He gives the payment. He gives himself for the people. And he doesn't pay it in installments. He pays the full ransom price up front so that from the moment that you enter into your life with Christ, you are safe and secure. You will never have any outstanding debt that you must settle with the Lord in order to be secure with him. Number three. Our better priest in Christ prays perfectly on our behalf. Our better priest in Christ pays the ransom price that no other priest could pay for himself or for us. And then number three. As we see in verses 17 through 21, even the priest was to be concerned with matters of purification. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 17, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they will wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And it will be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout all their generations. Picture in your mind the way that this works. This, this bronze basin, this bronze laver, is going to be outside in the courtyard. So as you enter into the tabernacle precinct, the first thing that you encounter is the bronze altar where the sacrifices are made for sin, where atonement is paid for. Beyond that altar, as you're walking, approaching the tent, is the bronze basin, is the laver where the priest had to wash. And the priest must wash himself, before he ever enters into the tent. Actually, he has to wash himself before he ever offers a sacrifice to pay for his sins and then has to wash himself again before he goes into the tent to meet with the Lord. What in the world is that about? I thought thought that's why we had the altar there, so that sins could be paid for, we could be settled, and we could be done with. I think one of the things that's happening, this, this combination of the altar and the basin works something like this. It's one thing to say that your sin is paid for. It's another thing to say that you have been purified from your sin. Right? In other words, the, the dirty, smelly kid, right, roaming the street, A benefactor can buy, can pay for his meal ticket to come in to a nice buffet meal. But he's still going to feel very out of place, in fact will be somewhat out of place, if that stinky, smelly kid comes in, price paid for, comes in still stinky and smelly to sit down at the table in clothes and in an appearance that is not fitting for his location. What we want, and we know this, we know this deep down. What we want to know is that not only is our sin paid for, but it's been purged. We want to know that not only is God not going to count our sin against us, that he has washed it away from us. We saw, in our own new covenant way, a representation of that this morning. That's part of what baptism communicates. It's the washing away of our former sins because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Paul himself says, in his own testimony with Ananias after his conversion, that Ananias tells him, Paul, get up. Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism represents that washing, that cleansing, that purification that comes when we have been united with Christ. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And then listen. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me say, if we had more time, we could go into this, the essential nature of confession for the Christian life. Let me appeal to you, Christians, if you are wrestling with sin that you still harbor guilt over, that you still wrestle with, that you still struggle with, you might want to consider that one of the ways that you can know that you are being washed clean of that sin that you hate is to confess it. Because God has promised that those who come to their merciful and sympathetic high priest to confess their sins will find themselves not only forgiven, but cleansed from all unrighteousness. You can know that your sin has been paid for and that your sin no longer stands as a stain on your person or as a mark on your record because it's been expunged. Only Jesus can do that. You can't do that. You can't clean yourself up. You can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. But you can confess. And you can know experientially that the blood of Jesus has cleansed you. All of this, all of this faithful, constant work that we so desperately need is given to us in the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A priest who prays and intercedes for his people by name. A priest who gives the payment that we could never pay to be ransomed and to be atoned for, and pays for each One specifically. And for a priest who does not need to cleanse himself, and precisely because he does not need to cleanse himself, can spend all of his time and attention cleansing the people who truly need it. You and me. Let's pray. Would you take just a moment and in silence, reflect and meditate on the glory of Christ represented in this passage. Perhaps you want to pray and confess. Perhaps you want to express your thanksgiving to the Lord for the beauty of Christ and the treasure that he is to you. Or maybe you just want to sit and let the truth wash over you. But take a moment to think and reflect and pray. Father, truly you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ Jesus. Thank you that the blessings that Christ has purchased for us has been applied to us effectively through the ministry of your Holy Spirit who indwells every child of God. Lord, we pray that according to your grace and mercy, that if there are those here in this room now, or who are hearing the truth of your word presented, who do not know what it means to have that kind of intercessory ministry, who do not know what it's like to have the Son of God interceding on their behalf, who has paid their ransom, who washes them clean from all of their sin and guilt, that you would impress upon them, that you would open their eyes to see that those gifts are theirs to be had for the asking. And Father, for those of us who have already entered into that blessing and that new life, would you cause us to be ever grateful for these eternal riches and to never grow tired of speaking of them or singing of them, to never grow tired of speaking and singing of Christ. We pray this in his name, for your glory, through your spirit. Amen.